0: Hello, and welcome to the Partnerships for Progress podcast, conversations to fuel innovation in higher education. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Wally Boston, President Emeritus of the American Public University System, to discuss the digitally connected ecosystem emerging within higher education. Listen in as we discuss systematic approaches that better serve the needs of the modern day learner and methods to keep institutions thriving through disruption. Dr. Wally Boston, President Emeritus of the American Public University System, has demonstrated exemplary leadership in business and higher education. He has spent more than two decades guiding universities, colleges, and students towards success with a particular interest in making education more affordable and accessible to all learners. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Boston.
1: It's my pleasure, Amanda. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you as well. As we both have been witnessing, higher education is really operating in an increasingly digitally connected world. What challenges do you see or do you witness as posing, making this more of a challenge for higher education?
1: I think the challenge is two or threefold. One, if you're a student enrolled in a traditional in-person class being taught by a professor in a lecture mode, you obviously have the distractions of individuals in the class, either on their laptop, their iPad, or their phone. And that's never good. I'm totally aware of people who teach classes like that, ask people to put their phone in a basket or something when they come into the classroom. But even more so, if you allow that sort of thing, you run into the challenges of news updates coming in instantly to your students in the classroom versus you, you're busy uh, conveying the lecture. I think on another front, a challenge that we have in a digitally connected world is that trying to schedule a traditional class in person somewhere is an incredible inconvenience to many people, including students who live on campus. I know after COVID ended, I had twin daughters who were in college during that period, and many faculty kept the option open for people to attend remotely or attend in person. And in many cases, more people were attending remotely, even if they lived in dorms on campus or or lived in apartments off campus. Clearly our traditional campus education is set up in a, in in what I always call a, a fixed expense operating expense. So you know you start to have to question what you're charging for when more of your students prefer to to attend classes via format like like Zoom or WebEx or, or something like that. So I, I think those are two of the biggest challenges. I think the third challenge is that digital can lead to scaling and lower cost. And and so if you're a traditional institution, I just looked at one today for a friend of mine's daughter and their cost per credit hours $2,300. I think that tuition is roughly 60000 a year. And I don't want to name names, but there are a lot of online schools out there that are charging a heck of a lot less than $2,300 per credit hour for online courses.
0: Yes, I, I certainly agree that many of the challenges also lend themselves to opportunities, but that also requires an awful lot of reimagining and redesigning and re architecting the way that higher ed is operating. Could you speak maybe to some of those opportunities for those higher ed institutions that are eager and willing to think about what that redesign might look like?
1: Absolutely. I think for traditional institutions, I'll, I'll use the word traditional, meaning that they have a physical campus somewhere and Students attend classes on those campuses. For traditional institutions that are reasonably balanced from a budget perspective, that they have a, a fair number of students attending to break even. For those institutions, adding or expanding their programs or their classes online can be a boost. And for years, we, we've had a number of institutions that have used OPMs to do that. I think the cost and the knowledge and experience when I got into online education was right around the turn of the century in 2000. In the last 23 years, we've seen a lot of people experience online, not just from taking classes perspective, but a lot of instructors have taught during the pandemic. Many were forced to teach. And I think many schools, in understanding that there were best practices for teaching online, held seminars and sessions to try to convey some of those best practices To their veteran faculty, I think in many cases, their younger faculty, their grad students who were teaching courses were quicker to learn and quicker to pick it up. But now you've got that broader expanse of instructors who've who've gone through online education. So I think there's significant opportunities for colleges that are willing to spend some time either converting classes or taking classes that are in a multi-attendance mode anyway. You can attend them synchronously online or you can attend them in person Those are the perfect ones to offer out there to the the public at large. It's a revenue opportunity.
0: And you've certainly addressed the fact that the expectations of learners have morphed over time and the opportunities to access information anytime, anywhere, and the approach of feeling maybe some days that, you know, attending in-person classes and other days, the flexibility is more convenient. It's certainly made an environment where being adaptable and nimble and providing modalities in a variety of different formats, it certainly requires a level of of interoperability. And I know you've spoken on this or written on this topic uh, in the past in relationship to transfer and thinking about learning outcomes in a digital world that can really be exchanged and transitioned along the learner journey, uh, even when they're thinking about different institutions, collect credits from from different moments in time in their learner journey. And so can you talk a bit about how this idea of well-defined learning outcomes across the industry can really help systematically lead learners to more seamless pathways for achieving their long-term educational goals?
1: I think the digital era and a focus on learning outcomes by accrediting bodies has led to better course syllabi where the standard practice is to talk about the learning outcomes objectives for each course. In addition to listing what the assignments are. I believe that if you talk about a seamless transfer, particularly with schools that are offering online courses. And we have something that's been identified by researchers since the early 2000s called swirling students. And swirling students are defined as students who have a home institution somewhere and then take multiple courses outside of their institution and transfer them back in. It is a very large phenomena in the online world with adult students. If you might imagine someone who isn't sure when they're going to complete their degree, but they're taking courses that might enhance their promotability of work or enhance just their personal knowledge for a particular subject matter, they may look for courses that aren't offered by their home institution but can be transferred back. Where there are specific MOUs between institutions, there's a presumption, and I'm gonna say, it's my assumption that with that specific MOU, competent people have reviewed the syllabi between the courses and know exactly how many credit hours are gonna transfer back as well as uh, which course number the other institution's course number is going to replace uh, a degree path or certificate. And electronically now, that's, it's so seamless and e- easy to do in digitization that it would not surprise me, for example, to hear about institutions that have a lot of online students having MOUs with dozens, if not hundreds, of other similar institutions. I think about community colleges, for example particularly the ones that have been pretty successful in offering online courses. It wouldn't surprise me in a state like California, where you have over 100 community colleges that many of them have MOUs with, between each other and the state institutions for seamless transfer of credit. That's probably an extreme example, but non- nonetheless, digitization is, has really helped that.
0: And so you alluded to the two-year to four-year transfer model, for example, and specific statewide initiatives that have lent themselves to trying to map those pathways. Do you see these efforts as being effective? Do you imagine that the ease of transfer is actually is there for the students and that students are taking advantage of these opportunities?
1: That's a loaded question, Amanda. (laughs) you know, most, most states have consortiums of state institutions, whether it's the community college system in Maryland, for example, with the University of Maryland system, that call for seamless transfer of credit. But when it really comes down to an actual transfer student, while the credits may transfer, they may or may not apply to the degree selected by the student. And that's just where we need better advising and we need better coordination between institutions. And I think we'll get there for a number of reasons. One, digital transcripts and and probably in in a few years, somebody's gonna come up with a system that has a uh, verify that the learning outcomes on this, so we don't even have to review it. You just have a, a verification process. But I think that tighter you have specific MOUs, particularly in that two to four year transfer path, the fewer credits you will lose. For example, I'm a, I'm a resident of the state of Texas and the state of Texas has what they call their core curriculum. And so it's either 38 credit hours or 42 credit hours. I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but each institution that's a state institution inside the state of Texas. So whether it's a two-year school or a four-year school, they identify basically their gen ed courses and how they fit into approximately eight different buckets And once they tag a course as being in the particular bucket, then all the state schools are obligated to accept those courses for transfer. And it eliminates redundancy. And and as a matter of fact, I think uh, state schools are penalized with transfer students if they have to take more than three extra courses to earn a degree. I mean, it's a very low number. And I think they were smart to come up with a system because it doesn't require an exact match, but what it does is it allows you to tag these courses inside the areas.
0: The digitally connected ecosystem that is shaping higher ed today has the ability to transform learning outcomes and create new pathways for learners. Keep listening as we discuss the shift to a learner ecosystem and the standards that institutions can adopt to better meet the needs of the modern day learner.
1: So let me say like Math 4 is equivalent in the particular section related to math to the same as somebody else's math 104 or 114, and you're gonna accept the credit. You're really not even gonna look at the transcript at all.
0: So you are describing a really exciting transitional moment, I think, in higher education where we're starting to evolve into a learner ecosystem and where institutions are all trying to or should be trying to figure out how they fit in that ecosystem and create standards that are navigatable for learners for a variety of reasons. As you are describing, their journey could be complex, especially the adult learner collecting credits from different institutions, not clear on how they're going to add up towards a specific degree or credential, which is obviously an investment of resources, both time and financial. And ultimately that that path towards completion and social mobility and hopefully a career trajectory that allows them to continue to grow and prosper financially and otherwise. Navigating that for the modern day learner, because of the digital space and all of the opportunities and all of the possibilities to reach institutions, not just geographically, but across the world, is a challenging I think pursuit for them to unfold and then puzzle back together. And so what would you say are some of the potential pitfalls when we think about affordability and accessibility for learners as this the learning ecosystem has started to get a little bit more both connected but also bigger to navigate.
1: It's been decades since I was a college student and I just want to say that this issue about transfer of credit or you know has not gone away and it won't go away because people change their minds on what they want to major in. I don't know how many times I changed my mind, but I'm pretty sure it was at least three as an undergrad. What I've found by serving adult students, though, is that many of them are coming back to college. They didn't earn their degree, but they did go to college and earn some credits. And so when they come back, I think there's a higher likelihood that they actually know what they want to major in when they come back as an adult, because it's an area that they're working in or an area that they've just developed a keener interest in maturity and life has helped them get there. But then they've got to find a way to maximize the transfer of all those credits they use because particularly if you're going to school part-time it's just going to take you longer to to get to the end goal which is to earn the the degree or or the certificate i think that every learner needs to understand that switching a degree whether you're someone who's been continuously enrolled since high school in you know, your 18 20 19 whatever or if you're somebody that's coming back after a 10 year gap switching your choice of program It's not the institution's fault and uh, you can change your mind. And so you're going to have to get smart about where you go. And there are nuances between degrees. Uh, For example, a computer science degree is typically is a lot more mathematical and scientific than an information technology. And so, you know, you may find that more of your courses transfer into an information technology degree or an IT management degree, uh, then transfer into a computer science degree. And so is it worth it to go for the the more harder scientific degree, the one that's more academic, the one that requires a lot more math, or is it not worth it? And so whether or not we do a great job of counseling, I think is institutional specific. i found that the source of counseling in many cases is, we, particularly with adult learners, They have colleagues who they work with, some of whom have already earned a degree, so they can be fairly good at that up front. But at the same time, it's really important to go through a process with someone early on, send in that transcript, do preliminary evaluations before they go down the road. And that's another thing, back to digital opportunities. There's no stigma or embarrassment if you switch schools when you're not living in the dorm. On the few occasions that I saw undergrads leaving campus in in the middle of the semester. Uh, My assumption was they were were either flunking out or had decided to transfer. You're not going to see that online. So I think that institutions need to know there's a greater likelihood if they aren't taking care of their students, advising them correctly, that they're just going to pick up and leave because they can do that, particularly if they're taking online courses.
0: So what advice would you offer to institutional leaders who are trying to think about how best to respond to the types of opportunities that emerge with this kind of digitally connected learning ecosystem?
1: I think you have to look at your students first. How can I maximize opportunities for my existing student base? And then if you want to grow and there there are institutions that have excess capacity that work students on campus and would like to grow that way or if you want to grow with online students or students enrolled in online graduate degrees for example i think you have to understand your brand you have to understand your mission and then you have to say if i put these pieces together this way what does that mean for what i'll charge what the students who i want to serve expect to be charged how competitive am i in in that particular market i mean over the years i've always come across people who work at traditional institutions that say, we have the most unique degree in make up something, radar identification. And while there aren't many people in the U.S. that may be interested in it, there are people in certain cities that have Air Force bases nearby. And so that may be true. It really may be true. But you just need to remember that if you're extending beyond typically 100 miles, Most online students attend an institution that the brand is within 100 miles of their home, even though they're attending online. So to go out beyond that 100 miles, you're going to have to spend a lot of money in marketing, a lot of money in advertising. That's not always easy. It's not always something that fits into the budget of, let's say, the director of online learning or the provost, depending on where online classes are put in an institution or if it goes up to the president themselves. In times of tight budgets, putting a lot of money out there to expand your enrollment uh, in an area of the country that nobody's familiar with may not be the best expenditure of funds.
0: How do you see the potential for collaboration or partnerships playing in a, a role in taking advantage of these types of opportunities?
1: First of all, I will say people are are so creative. So I know there are some smaller colleges that have looked to course sharing consortiums to enable them to offer degrees that they don't currently have because they have 75 to 80% of the courses that are taught. I think a typical liberal arts degree has eight courses in the major. So if you think about 10 courses a year times four years, so 40 courses and. I'm doing the math correctly, 40 times three is 120 credit hours. So if eight are required for a liberal arts major, then you know, you're actually getting somewhere between 75 and 80% of the courses and the direct tuition revenue at your institution if you're able to have a partnership, an MOU through a course sharing enterprise with another institution that has that. And, and I look at some of the institutions that are in trouble that their first reaction is they eliminate low enrollment degrees. Well, maybe what you eliminate are the staff you need to teach them on your campus, but you don't eliminate the degree because you can have a partner that ideally you, maybe you know someone at that institution, but they're on a course sharing platform and you can keep the degree alive. It makes it easier for you to assure people who are currently enrolled in that program that you're going to be able to teach them. That's you save the money with having to have so many faculty on board for a low enrollment degree. But I also think that you can also offer new degrees that are trendy, like a degree in artificial intelligence. You may be in an area of the country that there's no one that's an artificial intelligence expert in your area of the country, but you have students that really are interested in that. And same thing, if there's a platform that you're aware of, and there's an institution you're willing to partner with, go back to those eight classes. I mean, perhaps in a technical degree, it's more than eight, maybe it's 12. You can still keep and attract the student for a substantial percentage of your courses, keep your dorm beds filled, and have a robust course catalog while not necessarily offering having to employ all the faculty for some of those lower enrollment ones on your campus.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more that a pathway to sustainability and growth is really made available with the technological solutions that have emerged in order to collaborate better across both institutions and across the learner journey. And so I think there's still so much potential that we can, across higher education, tap to to really continue to think about better serving our learners, making learning more accessible, more affordable, and continuing to offer quality education in ways that that allow us to pool our resources and bring expertise across networks. And so I think it's a very exciting time. Are there any additional thoughts that you'd like to share with us today?
1: I think it's going to get more exciting, Amanda. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we are just at the front end of AI that's available on a mass basis and uh, I, I think a lot of, there was, there was two, two Titan partner surveys, one was done in the spring and then one was done just a month or so ago that showed the adoption rapidly changing between students and faculty on campuses. But based on, you know, a quick review of the numbers, it appears that while both are growing at healthy rates uh, utilization-wise, the faculty is still about six months behind the students. But I think there's just some wonderful things that can be done. I think we're going to solve the problem of hallucination. I I know of at least a dozen companies out there that quote unquote have products that do guardrails where you can feed the information that you want the language learning model to interact with. But I think, I I truly believe that we're going to see an acceleration of digital opportunities. We're going to see a a wide variety of costs. And obviously scalability and costs matter more when you have a, a a live instructor teaching a course versus someone who's recorded it. Or believe it or not, there there are companies out there that are offering to build online courses and they use avatar and there's never interaction with a live instructor. It's with an avatar. And you may chuckle at that. I, all of, you know, I've got three degrees and they were all in person with real instructors. But at the same time, I'm sure one of these days I'm going to probably pick up something through Coursera or uh, edX that an avatar is teaching it and it's not going to make a difference.
0: Thank you so much for your leadership in the industry, for sharing your wisdom and expertise with us today, and for your ongoing contributions. So grateful for all you do. Thank
1: you very much, Amanda. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Dr. Wally Boston for his insight. Acadium is providing academic leaders access to a vast digital ecosystem, helping institutions collaborate and evolve. We're here to help your institution meet these challenges and to better serve the modern-day learner. Make sure to subscribe to the Partnerships for Progress podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you know when the next conversation is live.